Good to see you all here today. My name is Drew. I'm the pastor here at Hope Community Church in Columbia Heights. It is wonderful to see you here. Uh, we are continuing our series here that we have, and uh, I think Phil requested that I have a live Vikings feed, so it'll be between the corner of the whole screen. I had to preemptively put a score in, so I just assumed this would be the score at this point. Zero seconds in, it would be 16-0. All right. If, if anyone is next to someone and they suddenly cheer, it is probably the spirit moving and not <laughs> just going to preemptively say that. Anyway, uh, one of my favorite parts of the way, actually one of my favorites is the same that Kelly shared with, uh, I get to often be officiating when I'm at a wedding and so I get to stand right next to a groom and watch him uh, kind of tear up and it's fun to see like... Uh, Men sometimes who don't know what to do if they tear up, like, they, like apologize a lot. <laughs> and you're like, it's okay, you're crying because you're getting married. Uh, but one of the other things I love is, um, I love uh, the, where they exchange rings. Uh, because when you exchange rings at a wedding, it's this, this great opportunity to kind of share the uh, meaning of a ring. And, and you get to wear a thing. You're giving each other a thing that you wear that reminds you of the covenant that you're making. There's not many things in life that you... Uh, do I, I know some people even have tattoos. Uh, some people in our church, right, have gotten tattoos instead of rings. Um, so that, like, for sure they have to stay married because their names are tattooed on their hands. Um, but there's something about the ring that's really sweet. And I, uh, in, our, in my story, and getting buying a ring for Kelly many years ago, um, I went to, I didn't know anything about this, which usually you don't, and I went to a ring store and uh, it was a not so great experience. I didn't know what I was doing or how much money. I actually was very unaware of how much like real jewelry is. So I was a little shocked at how much uh, that was. And, uh, but I do remember a few things. And one of them was um, the guy who was trying to sell me a ring uh, was really adamant on what kind of ring and how nice it is. He shared things like you should spend, you have to spend at least two months salary on a ring. And he said, it's an ancient tradition that you share two months' salary, uh, which doesn't make sense, right? But uh, I remember thinking, oh, there's no way, and I also don't make much money, so it's not that much, but there's no chance I could spend two months. And he would say, like, but you want her to know you love her. Like, oh, I think there's other ways I do that uh, than how much I spend on this ring. And, and I actually looked at some rings that didn't have diamonds and because I thought they looked kind of cool, and I thought, oh man, maybe not a diamond would be cool, also happened to be cheaper. And, um, and he said, you, you have to get diamonds, because a diamond is forever. And I said, okay, uh, that's cool, I know it's a very hard substance, and it lasts a long time. And he said, no, no, diamonds are forever. It's, it's again an ancient tradition, for since like time began, people have been giving diamonds to each other. And I said, no way. Okay, I guess. And then I ended up actually going somewhere else because of a series of other weird, pushy things he tried, and someone helped me out. But I remember that phrase, maybe you know this phrase, diamonds are forever, or diamond is forever. It's one of those things that culturally we probably know, and it's been around long enough that it feels normal that you just buy a diamond ring for someone. But it actually is one of those things, I love this, when you find out that half the things we believe maybe have always been around were just created by ad agencies. <laughs> to convince us to buy something, and that is what happened. The tagline, Diamond is Forever, was actually written by a copywriter in Philadelphia by an ad agency in 1947. And at the time, De Beers, De Beers, I think it's a different thing than that, but uh, 
It's hard to say that and not say De Beers. De Beers was looking for a campaign that would boost sales of their diamonds, which had been falling because of the Great Depression. And so they started this campaign in this, where they would say, a diamond is forever. It actually boosted sales. And that phrase has kind of just become a thing. And now it's pretty normal, right? If someone is going to get married, they go in, there's not necessarily even a discussion if there's something else that you're going to get. It's just like, what kind of diamond ring? Because for me, it at least felt like this is an ancient tradition. That's always been, and, and there's probably a good reason for it. I think it's, this is um, something that I think happens often, right? There's an assumption that we have. We believe something is and always has been, and so it must be the way it's supposed to be. And maybe sometimes it's not even that long. We're aware that that's newer, but we still just think, well, it's, it must be the way it is. Maybe the majority of people act or see something a certain way. Maybe just the cost of not following that thing is a lot. And so it's easier to say, yeah, I guess, yeah, diamonds are forever. Um, maybe we're just unaware. We haven't taken time. Or maybe we just didn't have the opportunity, right, to know. And so this is a series that we're doing here uh, at Hope for the next uh, we got f- four more weeks left um, that we call Made for God. And we're looking at identity, gender, and sex. And we want to just take an opportunity to stop and say, what parts of that are maybe uh, our culture around us has influenced us? Or maybe we just think there's only one way to think about this or one way, uh, there's only one way that I feel about this. Uh, many of us have grown up in, uh, whether in church or not in church, and we've seen marriages and relationships. We've experienced those ourselves. And we think maybe this is it. And so we want to take an opportunity to say, maybe, um, maybe this isn't it. And maybe there's things that we think are established things that even we've been told God has set up uh, in a certain way, and maybe it looks a little different. Or maybe not. Maybe we'll just also affirm things that you've been holding on to and say, is it? And we can say, yes, this, this is the way God has created. And so we're looking at a number of topics. Um, and uh, this week we're looking at singleness, dating, and marriage. And we'll continue the next few weeks to look at some other topics and just what what does God have for that? What has God um, set up in that? And and that there's really good news in all of that. So to recap, uh, there's also lots of resources online if you want to check those out. Uh, Today I'm actually going to share a lot from one of those resources. Um, We'll keep moving here. So um, just so we know where we're at, the series we're we're doing, we kind of see it as one long uh, sermon, or what, at least all kind of built together. So it's one that's really helpful to kind of have it build so that when we get to the point of like today, we, we have some understanding of some things. And so we know as we've started here that God is the one who knows that he's given us scripture and he's given us each other and the Holy Spirit to discern things. He also has the authority to say, this is how I made things and this is what's good. We have a good creator who creates good creation we learned about this opposite same relationship he made between a man and a woman and, and, and asked them to grow, to multiply. They become one flesh and they produce life. It's this image that, that bears the image of God, right? That these two things come together and create one and they bear life, which we see in the, in the gospel as Christ comes with the church when they, when they come together and connect and they bear life. In that, we learned that um, in the garden when things were good and everything was right, there was people were naked, vulnerable, exposed, and, and there was not shame. But last week then we took the opportunity to say, but that isn't what I'm feeling or seeing. And so we see that God's creation turns and changes as people turn away from him, believing the lies of this crappy, crappy, it is crappy, crafty serpent Satan. 
That was a slip of the tongue, maybe. Uh, really a salesman for sin. Recently I heard someone say that phrase, salesman for sin. And Adam and Eve and we believe him. And we turn away from God and his ways and we say, maybe, maybe that isn't right. Maybe I can find life in another way. And so we have lives that become broken. Sin and death become the great enemy. And it seems that there isn't an end. It seems that maybe that's one even. This crafty, crappy serpent, Satan has won. But we know that that's not true, right? The gospel tells a much better story, that God has come to rescue us, to give us life, that there still is relationship there, that however far we turn from him, however broken we feel or are, however, however far from his thinking we, ha- we are, he still welcomes us back in. It reminds us that we are broken and that all of us are broken, that all of us sin, that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross, whatever we bring to the table, and that God's grace is equal to all of us. That he loves us and pulls us in. There isn't something in you that is so broken or something about you or your behavior and action that says, uh, that's enough, I can't take this one. God uh, pulls his image bearers close, broken, and offers imaginable grace to sinners, all of us. It's so important, it's so critical to us as we move. So the reason we started with these kind of three, uh, these three sermons, these three uh, topics, are because we have to understand those, that God created good things, that he has authority, and that there is, there is brokenness, and that he's the one who heals it, and that we're all really messy and really broken. Because otherwise we come to these topics as we get specifically to certain topics and issues that people, uh, that, that, that people are struggling with, right? That people like real sin and real brokenness in our lives. And then we start just thinking that we're better. Quickly, we can believe we're better or we believe we're worse or we think we're too cursed for forgiveness. So last week we also looked um, just at this image, one of my favorites uh, of this Mary consoling Eve and just reminded that the gospel tells us that even in that brokenness and shame, God lifts our heads and says, there is one who has come. We'll rejoice together forever because of that. And so today we're going to kind of start zooming into one of those. And so we, we've established that and we say, okay, we're all sinners. We all come with that. And we have a good God who heals us, who brings life to us, who has given, who's offered us a life of freedom and goodness that we cannot do on our own. And so today we're going to look specifically at what does that look like in singleness, marriage, and a little bit in dating as well. So I'm I'm encouraged by, I've been really encouraged by this and really challenged by this. So hopefully the same for you. One of the things this week that um, I wanted to bring to light is one of the ways we can look at the world. So a few of you actually have been really helpful in sharing the same thing. You said, this is something that's really helped me. And I want to just pass it on to our church this is, um, as we think about how the world works, and specifically like in a postmodern culture, uh, we often can think of ourselves as we're here in a place, this is you, labeled there correctly, um, right there, and we can think that how the world works is from you, the rest of history goes out, or just everything that you feel and see around you kind of comes out of you. The center comes from here and you go like, now all the world around me is how I see it and feel it. And not only that, we can believe that that's how everyone else is existing. So there's actually kind of a disconnect. Oftentimes our, uh, our, the world and how it works comes out of us 
and intersects with other people, but we kind of get a bunch of different friends and people around us, and we're all starting here, even in history, I'd say. And one of the ways people have said this is that we lack a meta-narrative. So we lack a, an overarching story, an overarching creator, an overarching view of like, there's something bigger that I'm a part of because I might believe that I am the thing that creates and decides things. It's actually a really tragic if we don't understand that because we're saying, and we think scripture tells us that we are here but we're actually part of a much bigger story. This is why we did a whole series this summer where we talked about this story of God, a, an enormous story throughout all of history that is all encompassed by God's great story of his creation and the fall and brokenness of people, but the redemption through Christ and ultimately that one day our God will come back and make all things right. And that all people are inside of that story and that there's something outside of you that gives your identity there's a creator who helps you, who cares for you. There's someone who says, hey, you're part of my story and you're in it and I pursued you. This, this, this changes us when we know this. And I think quickly, I find myself doing this. I start thinking that my story is unique and that, that I'm here and I decide those things instead of missing out on the freedom of the story that I'm a part of. And so that, that might help us. Today as we think and then we continue to think, this is a way to think about at least part of why we, we hold on to identities sometimes as our, um, of the core of who we are, of like our, our real, ultimately our salvation, what will rescue us and what gives us hope is if we figure this thing out and forget that we're actually part of something grand and we've been given these incredible identities, what we're actually looking for. And so as we look at marriage and singleness, I think this will come out a little bit um, as we look at that and continue. But I want to think about that. Even This is the thing that I think about, I keep seeing when I'm... Um, like watching commercials. And I go like, huh, that commercial is trying to convince me that I'm kind of the center of my universe and all comes from me. And it doesn't tell me the story, the, the narrative that I'm in. Today also is a week that I've been excited for because for the last few weeks, I've been uh, asking a lot of you, hopesters, uh, what they have learned about singleness and marriage and dating. And so today I'm excited because not only... Um, as we do this, am I going to get an opportunity to share? Sometimes I throw the screen up and we have someone come up here to share. And actually today I'm going to get to share from a lot of you. And so we're going to hear, uh, I have some things I'm excited to share from scripture as we look through it. But a lot of just, we have some really wise people. Some people have experienced some real hurt and learned from that and they, and they want to share. So today we're going to learn from some hopesters, not just one. And, uh, these are men and women in our church, single and married. These are Packer fans and Vikings fans. I mean, it's only the gospel could bring us together. Um, and so I'm excited to do that today, to kind of get an, an opportunity not only to hear from me, but to hear from each other. I think we've learned, we can learn a lot from one another. And so I want to just take a little survey here as we start of, of the general, as I asked some of you, how have you experienced marriage and singleness, specifically in the church or even just in general? And I want you to hear from each other a little bit uh, what this looks like. All these are anonymous, so this is just a person from our church, but I promise you these are people from our church. These aren't just me taking on different personalities. Here's a few of the things I think will set up uh, our thoughts on marriage. Marriage is astonishing and difficult, tender and harsh, whimsical and worry-filled. We've got a poem right away. Isn't this cool? It is two broken people constantly needing grace and truth from and towards each other. Hey, great. We got some, some wise people. 
As a person who is single, it has been hurtful when people have treated me as an incomplete person, a Christian who has not yet arrived, or someone to feel sorry for just because I do not have a spouse. This was a common response when I asked our uh, single uh, people, hey, what has it been like to be single in our church? And they've said, whether here or even growing up, they said, "I, I got this message that there's something wrong. I haven't arrived yet. That there's something incomplete about being single. Maybe you felt that uh, yourself. This is from a young, a young hopester here. I said, what do you think about marriage? And they said, marriage sounds lame. You're stuck with one person and they might turn out to be bad. <laughs> I tried to encourage them with like, they will be bad. <laughs> they will disappoint you. Did not make them want to get married. Not a great pastoral moment. Uh, I love that. It, it seems funny and then, and then I go, huh? Kind of accurate though. Like, I remember feeling that, looking out at people. Often people might think that sexual sin is only something that single people struggle with. I mean, if you're married, you get to have sex, right? True, but sexual temptation never leaves. Those that are married fight the same battles. This person went on to just share how um, that was something they believed. And I think for people who are married, maybe others have, have uh, felt this pain of getting married, thinking, okay, if I just get married and then we get to have sex, then that, at least that temptation will be gone. There might be new things and realizing that temptation is still there, uh, which often can cause lots of pain in a marriage as if that, it's not something that goes away. Another person said, one thing that both confounds me and at times frustrates me is that newly married people often use the phrase like, we need to find married friends now that we're married or we need to get in a married small group now. To me, it seems to be both insult and minimize single people. It leaves the impression that their relational experience can have limited value to those who are now married. Untrue. That feels like one of those Bible verses where Paul's like, like, you don't need Jesus. And he says, no, right? I love, I love it. So this same, uh, again, someone observing, this is someone who's, actually, who's married saying, when you become married and then you say, well, I, I don't know if single people have can speak into my life because they're not married. You're, say, you're devaluing like just their wisdom and just relationship. You're saying, I, I need to hang out with married people now because I don't know if you could help me. You're, you're devaluing. I think theologically you're saying the spirit that dwells in you and that I would say dwells in me, it must be like different. There's different wisdom there. I think other, others have felt this same part, right? In our relationships. Got a couple more here. I grew up expecting you to get married and have kids, so not doing either has felt like a loss. Another mature single person told me she had to grieve not getting to get married or have kids, and that helped me a lot. So I still grieve these things when I need to, and I do, and I do still need to sometimes. It's helpful to know that. I'm so thankful people are willing to share honestly about this. There's real grief involved, especially there, what if you're single and you desire to be married and to have kids and it doesn't happen and this person thankfully was cared for by another person to say, I've had to grieve that also. So in a lot of my asking of questions in the, in the last weeks and asking people specifically, whether Christians or not, what do they think about being single or um, married, I've get, gotten similar responses and I put them in certain categories. And this is what's going to help frame us today as we 
go through. We're going to hear from some more hopesters, but this, this lets us see like there's some pain here and there's some disconnect. And what, what is really the purpose of marriage and singleness? And are they different? How does that look? And so these are some of the phrases. I, I've just lumped them in my own phrases and I've actually taken one of these from someone. So uh, sometimes singleness can be thought of as a curse. Sometimes marriage can be felt as a curse. Is it a curse? Sometimes it can be seen as a superpower. And when I say superpower, I'm stealing this from Sam Alberry, which we're going to look at him a few times here. He writes a book on the seven myths of singleness, which I'd recommend to all of you. It was really valuable and just really encouraged me to love Jesus more. Um, but he's, he uses a phrase kind of like this to say, like, we see it almost as like Christ-like, like, like when you're married, you somehow grow this incredible superpower that makes you better, more capable, uh, or more advanced, at least like you drank some potion and now you like can do things other Christians can't who aren't married. And similarly, in talking to some married friends, they say, oh, when I was single, I, it was like I could do anything. You know, I could fly. I was free. And you're like, well, remember when you were single and we talked about how we wanted to be married all the time because you thought they had superpowers? So this idea of like, is it a curse? Is it a superpower? And then also we hear this, this word gift, which we're going to see in the passage today. Um, so we're going to take a little survey. We're going, to look, we're going to look at just one passage today that specifically kind of unpacks this, and we're going to look at what Paul has to say about being single or married. And, and is it a curse? Is it a superpower? Is it a gift? I'm sure many of you can already guess. You're already going. We know where this is going. We all know it's a superpower. Well, let's see. Let's see if you're right. Because you're not. All right, here we go. We're in 1 Corinthians 7. If you want to open your Bibles or an app, or all, the, the scripture will be on the screen. We're just going to sit here today. This passage comes right after our passage that we base our name of our series off of uh, in 1 Corinthians 6. It just tells us that we can't forget that we've been bought with a price, that actually our bodies are not our own. We were bought through Christ's death and resurrection, and now we're God's. And, and these bodies aren't just our bodies are God's and to be used for what he created us to be used for. And not in a way it's like, oh, now I have to do that. I have to deal with this. But in a way, like, now you finally get to be those people you were created to be. Way back in creation, the ones that bear the image of God, that, that grow and multiply, that care for, that ultimately love God and love people, serve God and serve people. So we're going to look at this passages. And then um, you know, a lot of this, a lot of you shared great wisdom that we're going to get to share as we go through here. Now for the matters you wrote about. So he actually is writing a letter to the church in Corinth and he's talked about lots of things and now he is, uh, had apparently gotten a letter from them that said, hey, we have some questions about some things. And so now he's going to answer some of those questions. So a little FAQ for Paul in the book here. And, uh, and interesting, you kind of get to figure out what the question was. So now for the matters you wrote about, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of of self-control. Okay, so Paul's writing there, and, a, and they've asked him a question. Is it good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman? 
Interesting question. Culturally, maybe it could be helpful to understand um, that might look a little different than what we see in some ways. So at the time, there's a strong belief, which even today I think we see this, uh, in that like the body and the soul are disconnected and the body is really uh, just a, a thing that we use here, but our soul is really where the value is. Like that's the real value of a person and the body is disconnected and, and we can use the body for whatever and eventually it kind of gets discarded and just the soul remains. And so there's a thought then in the church it can creep in. They say like, well, then we shouldn't do things that are pleasurable and things like sex don't need to happen. Just soul things need to happen. And so I think some of that he's speaking to that. And also there's uh, uh, an issue where culturally men were uh, allowed to, to kind of sleep with different people, to have sex with different people where wives were seen as lower class, even lesser of people in a sense, and they had to only be with their husbands. Sometimes just because they're just being used like to have kids. Sometimes men would even have like different wives depending on some that for sex and some to have kids. And so the wives were just used so that the men could have kids and, and continue their family line. And so wives were kind of in a sense stuck. And if men were feeling urges or they, or they felt like I, I have an appetite, which we hear earlier in first Corinthians, then I should be able to satisfy that with whoever. And if my wife isn't doing that, then I should be able to. So I think some of those questions are probably coming from there. Like, what do we do with this? Is it better just to say like, nobody should be having sex? And Paul says, no, no, you're not thinking about this through the gospel, right? You're just using what's kind of around you and saying, oh, how do we react to that? And a lot of times our reaction is, right, just stop. Let's just stop doing all those things people are doing and then everything will be okay. And instead he's going to encourage us ultimately here, right, to run to Jesus as he always does. So what he says here is he says there's a mutual submission to each other. We hear this in in, uh, Ephesians 5 too. We hear mutually submit to one another. So he says, which is pretty wild for him to say this at the time he says this. Hey, husbands, first he says, hey, wives, you should submit to your husband. He has authority over you. And he says, hey, and husbands, same with you. You're there to serve and care for one another. You've become one flesh. Do you remember? That's what happens. Your purpose is not just to fulfill a selfish need or an appetite that you have to use that person to get what you want. But marriage is used to to encourage one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to even be able to lay down a preference for one another. That sounds very Christ-like, does it not? Something has changed in you. So he's saying, hey, your marriage, I want you to keep having sex with one another. It's an opportunity for unity and to connect with each other. Also, he says, be careful because Satan will use that to tempt you if you lack self-control. He might use that, if, if you're not doing that, to tempt you to look to others or to other things or to try to find hope in something else. And so he, he first lays out a little bit of what it looks like to be married. And the, the goal isn't, I'm going to find someone who can fulfill things for me and serve me, but it looks like a marriage that is how do you serve one another? How is there one flesh? How is there unity in this that together you're in this? One of our hopesters says it this way. <coughs> I love this. The Christian life, first they say, the Christian life is like kintsugi. I, be, I think that's how you say it. An art form which is a, where a broken piece of pottery is repaired using gold and lacquer. As in 2 Corinthians teaches, God has invested our fragility and brokenness with his treasure. And sanctification is this slow process. Sanctification is this 
process, right? By which we are made more aware of our sad state and more reliant on his grace. He's, he's gold filling in and strengthening our cracks. Isn't that a great image? So it says in marriage, this is demonstrated as two people become co-repairers with God by being uh, vulnerable enough to showcase our broken edges, humble enough to accept repair and giving enough to use up our own treasure, time, wisdom, emotion, self as a material for building someone better. That's like from a book. Whoever wrote that, write a book. We will all read it. Um, This is great. So it gives this image, which I think is the image that Paul is trying to get here. He's specifically talking about sex and marriage, but I think he's saying, remember what marriage is. Gospel marriage is two people who serve one another, who are building one another up. A place where you can be vulnerable, right? You can be naked and unashamed because you know the other person's intent is to build you up, is to help repair you and ultimately hand you to Jesus, right? To keep pointing you to Jesus, the one who ultimately does this. So that's, that's, a, different, that's a different thought on what marriage is. Marriage is not a, a, a step I take, someone who fulfills a need I have for a while and then I can move on to another one. It's not a, it's not a thing that completes me. It's a person that I get to help build up in Christ and grow. What a great image, right? Of broken vessels being repaired. Well, he continues on. Now he doesn't leave out he continues to talk about what it does it look like to be single. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. It's Paul, he's single at this point for sure. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if you cannot control them, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I like that that phrase is in there. So he uh, here, now, this is a great verse. This is one that maybe some of you feel like, where has that verse been? It says it's good to be unmarried. Some translators say it's, it's better to be single. Well, that's, that's wild, right? I, I feel like historically in the church, maybe recently at least, we haven't always held that up. I think there's kind of a, even in just our, hey, how you doing? You dating anyone? You married yet? What's wrong? Could I connect you with my aunt's son? <laughs> we got to get you married. In fact, I was reading a really old commentary and it said, uh, this passage is helpful when women become spinsters at age 35. And I thought, what? And then it had a little note and it said, it's common that at age 35, w- women have little hope to find marriage and we, and we call them spinsters in the church. I thought, what a crazy, when was this written? It was written in like 1937 or something, so that might help. But what a, right, we've had this, this view in the church, which you heard earlier from some, some of our own here in our church, that there's like an incompleteness or a less than. And Paul does not say that here. He said it is good to stay unmarried. He's going to explain a little bit more later of, of why that might be. He's not necessarily saying they're better, you're better if you're single, but he's saying each of you is a gift from God and it actually is good to be unmarried, which I think similarly, culturally, uh, that would have been really pretty radical. Not only is he saying husbands and wives should be exclusive to each other and they should serve one another, not use each other, that's very different than what people are seeing around them. He's also saying it's okay, it's good if you're not married. 
right? And we know our hope is not in that. He says, it's actually good. I, I want you to hear that because culturally there, uh, for them, that would have been, everyone would have been married. You kind of had to be married to keep moving. And, and marriage looked a little different, but you had to be. In fact, lots of women when they were very young were married to older men for, for their family's gain or to, to get money or just status. Because being unmarried, especially as a woman, would put you pretty low in society. And so here he says it's good. And in fact, he says, he calls us gifts. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another. So he, said, he actually, right off, the, right off the bat here, he says, singleness and being married are gifts. It kind of answers our question so far. Well, Sam uh, Alberry in his book talks a little bit about this, and actually some hopesters do too. It says gifts, as Paul will go on to explain in this letter, later on, he's going to talk more about gifts, are about building up the church rather than feeling a sense of individual personal fulfillment. It's about serving others and not about feeling a special sense of peace. One of our hopesters says, the older I get, the better I understand scripture, both as it relates to singleness and to marriage. In all cases, we get the opportunity to see a person's God-provided gifts and talents. In all cases, those gifts and talents can be used to serve the church and be a light to the broken world. So we're hearing here, just in these few verses we've looked at, that the way we view marriage and the way we view singleness maybe needs a little tweak. I know for me it does at times. It's actually a gift. And I would say it's, we've been given gifts, but why have we been given gifts? Not because not I get to then use those to fulfill myself. We've been given gifts because we've been completely satisfied in the gospel and now we get to be gifts to the world around us. There's a mission in us, whether we're single or married, those bring different opportunities in life, but we all are gifts to those around us because we live in a world where there's a lot of hopelessness and we have this gift of hope that we get to carry with us. He keeps going on here to talk about marriage and singleness. He kind of jumps around a little bit, but he says, to the married, I give, he goes back to people who are married. I, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. And as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or his sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I love it. In all these, in this part of uh, 1 Corinthians, he's very clear that he kind of talks to both people, even though he's just repeating it, right? But it's really important because culturally, those people have been seen as very different, had very different rights, kind of responsibilities. And he's saying you both are called to love and serve one another. Men you are and women you are. And then this is interesting because what can we learn from this? He's saying, right, big picture. He's saying, God has brought you together. and we, we don't want you to separate. If marriage is, is an image that bears the image of God and his people, then separating that image actually causes us to break that 
that, it, that, it, that picture, right, that we're showing to the world around us. There's a commitment made. Also, I think he's probably considering why people would be doing that. Uh, probably not a whole lot different than we see, like people have lost interest or they, are being, they think they're being fulfilled with another person, and so they would leave. There's lots of maybe conflict and pain within that marriage. They think, I'd rather go somewhere that has peace. I can get away from this. Maybe someone else can bring me fulfillment. Or maybe just singleness. Sounds a lot better because this feels like a curse. He's saying there's something really important about staying together. And I think this is really interesting. He says if you're married to someone and they don't know Jesus, let's say you get married and neither one of you do and then you, you come to, to know the Lord. He says, you think he might say, well, then you should go find someone else who loves the Lord. But he says you should stay with them because how do you know that you won't be the one who has the opportunity in the way you live and love and care for them, for them to know the Lord? He, he gives us a mission that's way above our own self-interest in this. He gives us a, a mission that says, hey, even when someone's hard maybe to be around, and not necessarily hard, right? It doesn't necessarily mean they're like a bad spouse, but it says like even if you have different worldview, a different way to see things, a different hope, you get the opportunity. So your mission to be a gift to those around you seems to be bigger than just this marriage relationship that you're in. I think that gives us a principle even beyond marriage or singleness, just that the position we're in, he's gonna go on to say this, the place we're in is where God has us and God's gonna use us there. And what if that wasn't an opportunity for us to just get things from it or fulfill us or that is what brings us our identity. What if we're outside of those things and this could be an opportunity to care and love someone else? This is why we need community also. If you can imagine how painful this could be, some of you know exactly how painful this could be to be in just conflict in your marriage, but with someone who you feel like you have very different hopes, very different missions. That's why we need others that can say, encourage us and say, Jesus is good. He's enough. He loves you, especially if your spouse isn't feeling that. This is where I know in, in my own life, even as Kelly and I have a, a day where it's something's off to have a friend who reminds me of that, whatever position they're in. I don't need a married friend to say, hey, Jesus is enough, Drew. This is so, so important for community. All right, we're going to keep moving here. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. There it is. Just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So he clarifies, this isn't just for your church. Not like you guys are people where I'm like, hey, you're going to have a little stricter <laughs> rules here because you're a little, little wild in Corinth. All churches, I say, hey, wherever you are, be there. Be called to that. As a man already circumcised, when he was called, should I not become uncircumcised? Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, should he not be circumcised? Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they are in when God called them. So this is this passage one. So he seems like he's saying different things as we read this. Is he now saying, if you're single, you're not allowed to get married now. If you're married, please stay married. I think, I think what he's telling us here. Um, is something really important. And actually the end of this 
is really important. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when, the God, when God called them. Another translation of this actually says, uh, you should remain in the Lord where you were called. I think that's more helpful. So he's saying wherever you are, the place you were put in, you could find your identity. You can find who you are. You can find your mission exactly where you are. And so trying to figure out, should I have a marriage where we don't have sex? Is that what's best, Paul? Or should I have a marriage where we do? Or should I be single? He's saying right where you are, you can remain in the Lord. And that's where you should be. He actually goes on to say it again. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you are, if you can gain your freedom, do so. This is the, the one exception he gives. I love this exception. He says, if you were a slave, even right there, follow the Lord, serve those well around you. But if you do have the chance to get freedom, you should, right? You, you don't need to be a slave. For the one who was a slave when called into faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. That's a crazy statement. You understand that? If you're a slave, you're not free. But he says, if you're called to faith in the Lord, you are free. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they are when God called them. Don't be a slave to human beings. He's, he's even connecting now, like if, if our hope and our lives rely on another person, whether it's a hope that I can be in a marriage with a person or I'm in a marriage, if our hope and identity and salvation come in that person, then we become slaves to that. And we aren't. We're called to be servants to the Lord. That's where the greatest freedom is. That's where we truly are free. And so he gives us a little picture here. He says, okay, we're talking about marriage, but think about like a slave who's enslaved. But they're actually in Christ, they're free. If they have the chance to be free from, from that you know, physical life of slavery, they should, but they're free. They're, their soul and, and heart and their, their all of them is free when in the Lord. That's it's really important. It's interesting this is in the middle of a conversation about if we should be married or unmarried. He's saying, I think you're making these people, these relationships, something that they aren't and can't fulfill. Your freedom comes in remaining in the Lord. In fact, this passage, uh, this is where we see this. Brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each is called, there let him remain with God. This is our calling. Our calling is to remain with God and then we do that in different ways, gifted in different ways. We cling to Christ in that way. Sam Alberry says, the issue is not whether this path or that path is better, whether singleness or marriage would bring me more good. The issue is God and whether I will plunge myself into him, trusting him every day. Amen. Again, the answer is, how can I consider Christ more? How can I pursue Christ more? How can I cling to him more? And how does this position I'm in not be the thing that brings me hope? This does not curse me. This is not my superpower. I've been created, I've been given a gift, and I am a gift. Kind of as we wrap up our time here in, in the Corinthians, uh, oh, we just had this passage. Keep rolling here. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of his world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, 
how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So here's where he comes back and he explains why he might say it's good not to be married. He says, when you get married, there's a danger in your devotion going to your spouse or your family. There's a danger in that your mind and your heart goes to things that are other than the Lord. And that if you're single, not that you, that won't happen, but there's not another person that's drawing those things, pulling you to put your hope in them, feeling the pain of putting your hope in them and not working. You think, I gotta make this person a, a certain way so that I can be fulfilled. So that life will be good. If my spouse was just this, then life would be fulfilled. He's saying there's a danger in that. And so to be unmarried does give you some freedom in that. It's interesting. It's helpful to hear. A hopester said, I really have needed to hold on to the truth that the more we cling to him in whatever season, they, they say earlier, whether, whether I was single or when, I was, when I'm married, whatever journey, the more we'll find satisfaction, the more we cling to him. He's the only one who will see us with all our brokenness and love us wholly. Good word. Marriage is a reflection of God's love and relationship with his people. Singleness should remind us that Jesus is enough. Jesus is where true satisfaction comes from. We need to hear both messages. Married people need to hear the message that Jesus is enough and must be the object of our worship. We both, we need both, married and single, to be a complete church family, working, loving, living, and worshiping Jesus together. It's a good word. Sam says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, we see it. We look at it and we see an image of what two people in an exclusive relationship bringing life forth together looks like. Singleness shows us its sufficiency. Amen to that. I don't know if I've uh, heard a more passionate plea in my life for my whole being to be, to be hopeful in Jesus alone that Jesus is enough than from single friends who say, Drew, Jesus is enough. And I'm like, I know. And they're like, no, 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 no. I go home lo alone every night. And I lay in my bed and I desire to have a, a husband or a wife. And I don't. And I have to believe Jesus is enough because it's true. And they say, it's enough. You go, oh, you, you, like, you, like you get it. Like I need, I need your, I need some of that. Because I go home and I, and I get deceived that like, oh, I have someone here. I mean, I'm okay. I forget like a depth of loneliness where I have to cling and know Jesus is enough. What a gift that is. And so as we uh, get back to our little survey here, if you haven't figured it out, I'm sure some of you have been writing this down as we go. Singleness is not a curse, friends. It's not a superpower. It's a gift. But guess what? Marriage too is not a curse it's not a superpower. It's not Jesus. You haven't become a next level Christian. It's a gift also all used to bring glory to God, to build up the church, to encourage one another, to point us to Jesus, to call us out at times. We need all of us. You're a gift. If you're single here at our church, you're a gift and thank God you're here. And if you're married, you're a gift. Thank God you're here. We get together to bring the light to people who don't know there's a light. We get to use the gifts God's given us together to be the body in all circumstances. Our identity is not in being single or married or in our dating status. Christ alone brings us our identity. He's enough. That's good news. You don't, 
You don't have to keep going, how can I make this marriage fulfill me? It won't. Jesus is enough. How can I figure out how to be the right kind of single person? You don't. Jesus is enough. He's enough. So lastly, quick little bonus here, dating. Dating is interesting because dating is not really in the Bible. So if, if I search for dating in the back of my Bible, it's not there. <laughs> so you go like, well, how, what do we think? Well, I think these same principles can apply to dating. And I actually asked some of you, I said, what would you give advice to people who are dating in our church? And I heard very similar things. Dating is not a curse. Dating is not a superpower, but is a gift. So what does that mean? It means uh, dating someone should not be a curse on you. Should should not be a heavy, weighty thing that has ruined your day over and over. Also, the person you're dating is not a curse. They feel like a curse. That might not. That might be a flag there, a red flag. <laughs> if you're talking to your friend, you're like, I'm dating this guy, and he's a curse. <laughs> okay, let's get out of that one. <laughs> it's an opportunity to connect. I think sometimes we feel like it's a curse because we have put high expectations on people. Over and over, I ask people, what would you advise people on dating? They say, lower your expectations. My wife always jokes that we do premarital to couples. She says, uh, our, if we ever wrote a book on marriage, it'd be called Lower Your Expectations. <laughs> uh, she gives me this look. I'm like, yeah, thank God she lowered her expectations. <laughs> you forget that another person's broken. So if you're looking for a perfect person who is Jesus, then you're going to feel like it's a curse because they are not going to be Jesus. Also, dating isn't an opportunity to show off your fake superpowers. Multiple people said, hey, just, I think it's helpful to be reminded that I don't have to be uh, put together. I don't have to have superpowers. I can just be my broken self and see if someone else who's broken would like to hang out, get to know each other, encourage each other, build one another up. I think as a gift... Dating is an opportunity to figure out, is that person, can they be a gift to me? Am I a gift to them? Do we see each other as an opportunity to serve and care for each other? And is this a person that together we could become a gift? When you're moving towards marriage, that's a question that can be helpful. Are, are together, uh, someone asked Kelly and I this, are you and Kelly a gift? Will you be a gift together? Oh, that's a good, good thing to consider, I think, as we date. Same thing. Right, because ultimately our hope isn't in how well we date or if we can find the perfect person, but I'm looking for another broken person that I can be a gift with. And so as we end here, I do have some very practical things people shared with us, and I want to just share them with you as we um, end our time. I'll actually have our band, our worship team come up as we end here. Uh, what does it look like to be a gift then? And so here's some practical ways people have shared. Um, here, I think I got four of them here. So be quick to listen and slow to speak. One of our hopesters here said, a common response I hear is the caution, this person's single, is the caution that the search for fulfillment and contentment does not end up getting, uh, does not end upon getting married, which I know this 100% to be true. Nothing can fill us in the way that we need, that uh, we need Christ to. However, sometimes this can come across as callous brushing off of a deeply expressed emotion. A few people shared this. So sometimes they say, oh, I've been trying to date this person and it hasn't worked out. And then there's small groups like, yeah, yeah, hey, don't put your hope in Jesus. Jesus is enough. Or don't put your hope in that person. Jesus is enough. Now let's get back to our study. They go like, I, sometimes I just need a, someone to listen maybe a little more. Or maybe say, gosh, that sounds hard. And we love you. I'm sorry. 
I'm really sorry. Maybe a little slower to, to drop the gospel bomb on someone, just, just being a slow person. They went on to say nuance and balance needs to be found in our responses. This is an opportunity for us to care and build one another up, right? And so I'd say this is a great opportunity, whether single or married, with one another to be good listeners. Sam Alberry says commitment to friendship is key. A friend is someone who has chosen you. An obligation is entirely self-imposed, which can make it all the sweeter. It is a gift to have someone who knows your soul, knows the best and worst about you, yet through it all is deeply committed to you. It encourages us, this doesn't, this isn't, this almost sounds like this is what you're looking for in a spouse. This is a friend. And so what it would look like for us to have good, deep friendships in our church? What would it look like to have people, whether married or single, understand us in a way, be united with us in spirit, forgiving us, extinguishing our pride, hopeful with us in our future, united with us in a mission, loving us in a way? What does it look like to be committed to one another in friendship? We know people here at Hope who have like made a commitment in a very real way and saying, hey, I want to be committed to you as a friend. Like, I, I want a covenant with friendship with you. Like, we're going to be in this together. Not just like, hey, it's fun to hang out with you. I assume we both are good friends. But they said, we're, we're in this together. Knowing that we have a good shepherd who has shepherded us through that, I think that's really an important thing to consider too. How are we good friends to one another? Actually living life together. One of the ways someone here at Hope shared this, that we're sharing not only the gospel, but our lives together. What has meant the most to me as a single person is when my married friends have welcomed me into their family life. I've been so thankful for the community I've found as I've been invited to eat dinner with your family, watch your kids play sports. Seasons that are busier for families, holidays, back to school, can be lonelier when you're single. Simple texts asking how my day was and a hug, hello, mean even more when you don't have anyone at home who does those things. I feel seen and I feel loved. This was a response from a lot of people. Being invited to regular life, not creating a new thing, not having like single night at my house where we let the single people eat with us and we clean up and then and the kids don't eat with us because so they don't have to experience eating with kids. Uh, that whole thing. Um, but just messy life together feels way more like we're family than cleaned up singles ministry. What does it look like to invite each other into one another's lives? And lastly, just as an encouragement as we get some time to worship our creator, I think we just need to remain in the gift giver, the one who gives us the gift of life. And remember the words of Jesus, a single man who led a bunch of other single people and some married people and says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. If we're looking for life and fulfillment, there's one place, it's Jesus. And so what does it look like in our church as we continue to cling to him? It'll make you a better friend, it'll make you a better spouse, it'll make you a better single person serving and loving in our church, a better married person serving and loving in our church. What does that look like for us? Let me pray for us as we uh, head into a time of response. Here at Hope, we like to respond by singing together. Uh, we take communion, uh, which is out in the hallway. It's an opportunity for you as Jesus has commanded us to remember his broken body. Remember that he's enough. His body was broken, his blood was shed. And so we encourage you to head out in the hallway, take communion, um, maybe take a moment to pray. Also, there'll be people available in the back of the room who want to pray for you. So please, please take them up on that. Just a quick prayer over you. They want to care for you and love you in that way. You can share if you want or not. Um, also, you can respond. one way to respond to the gospel is giving. 
You can do that here at Hope on our website. You can go right uh, at hopecc.com and you can give. Uh, but right now we're going to take an opportunity. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing together and respond to this good news, good news that Jesus is enough in whatever situation we're in. Lord, you're good. Oh, you're good to us. You're a good creator who has created good creation, Lord, and though we feel the brokenness of it, you are restoring us like pottery that's been broken. You're, you're putting us back together. And Lord, we look to the day when, when that's done, when you make all things right. I pray uh, that we would be people who would repent well as maybe we've treated others as less than us. I, I, I ask that we'd repent from putting people in places as our savior and they can't be. I pray that you just give great life to us and joy to us as we sing and remember the good news that it's not us, but it's you that has done this good work. We thank you, Lord, you're good. You're very good. And we thank you for Christ who gives us life, who died and, and resurrected so we could have life. Amen. Amen.